Okay, well, we are ready to go this morning, and we, we have a little bit of reviewing to do, we might say, a little bit of reviewing, because uh, even though some might think I made a mistake, we've just made some adjustments, some slight adjustments to a doctrine that we taught last time. So we'll have a, a I think it'll be uh, more enjoyable this time. Well, maybe not, but the same. But anyhow, uh, let's take a few seconds for spiritual preparation, confession of sins, uh, just prepare, in preparation for our class. So you have just a few seconds, and then I'll open us in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for this class where we can study uh, Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, and principles of life. We're thankful for those who are here, who are serious students of the Word of God. Help us to realize that it is the Word of God that's alive and powerful in our lives. We're also thankful, Father, for this institution, for Washington Bible College, Capital Bible Seminary, and the Equip Institute. And we're thankful for uh, its dedication to the teaching of the Word of God. We pray as it... Uh, goes through expansion, Father, from uh, Maryland into Virginia, that this will go smoothly. We pray for the financial support that is really very much needed at this time, both for uh, the Maryland campus and also for the extension here in uh, in Virginia. And we know, Father, that uh, with you, resources is certainly not a problem because you own the cattle on a thousand hill and everything else. So we pray, Father, for your continued support for this institution. We pray as we study the the Word of God this morning that we'll be able to focus and and concentrate on it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, This morning, we are in Ruth 2. Oh, there they are. Excuse me. We're in Ruth 2. And last time... We studied um, the doctrine of the Leverett marriage. I've heard some people pronounce it Leverite, but I, Leverett or Leverite, Leverett, I think is it. And there were a couple questions at the end of the class, and I always enjoy questions because sometimes um, there is a part of a concept that I just either haven't considered or just need to do more work in. And one of the questions had to do with uh, the widow joining another family, uh, a man who was already married. And then as I continued to study that, I also took a fresh look at the, uh, the exchange at the end of the uh, ceremony of the sandal in which the uh, if... Uh, the brother-in-law declines his responsibility that there's an exchange of a sandal and also the uh, widow, it says in Deuteronomy, matter of fact, we'll read that again, actually spits in the brother-in-law's face. And for some, we might find that rather crude. As a matter of fact, it's, if, if that is in fact the case, it is meant to be crude, but for some they would find that very crude. For others, they may be looking for an opportunity to spit in their brother-in-law's face. I don't know. I wouldn't accuse anyone here of that. But let's go back. and Just let me read a few verses here. 
the concept of the, the Leverett marriage really is already expressed in chapter 1 as Naomi discusses the fact that she does not have any more children for her daughters-in-law to marry. So we already see that concept. And then when we get to chapter 2, we see that our author announces to us that there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth. And we see, I think that this, while this can be wealth, I think it also deals uh, more with character, a man of great character of the family of Elimelech. His name... Boaz. And I think the reason that it's announced this way is for us to understand that there is a responsibility by the relatives of Naomi. And uh, Naomi has had offspring, but she's had has daughter-in-laws who have not. And so that's the focus is going to be on Boaz and this relationship. Now, one of the things I did is I um, we don't have uh, scriptural evidence to really determine the uh, status of a brother, of a brother-in-law. So I have several uh, Old Testament, well, probably many Old Testament authors, uh, Old Testament uh, writer, writers of, who study the Old Testament. One of them is Eugene Merrill. He's a, a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. And he really specializes in the Pentateuch, particularly Deuteronomy. So I went to one of his commentaries. And let me read to you one of the things that he, one of his comments on Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 25, first of all. Let's get back to Deuteronomy 25, where we were last time. Deuteronomy 25, starting in verse 5 says, if brothers dwell together, and the sense of this dwelling together does not necessarily mean they have to live in the same house, but it means they have a close association. And uh, in this, and for us, I think that's, that, will, uh, that will suffice. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married. We have that indicated here, but uh, or inserted, as you can see from the italics, it's not really there, but shall not be to a stranger, shall not go to a stranger outside, uh, outside what we would say the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, which is uh, an indication of having sexual relations, take her as his wife, so he marries her, and performs the duty of the husband's brother to her, which means there's a responsibility here to have an heir. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now, one of the comments of uh, Eugene Merrill is this. Modern scholarship refers to this practice as the Leverett marriage, Leverett meaning brother-in-law. For it not only allowed, but prescribed that a widow whose deceased husband had died without male heir marry one of his brothers. And then he adds this clause, presumably the next eldest one. So it's the next one in line. And again, we don't have scripture for that, but he says presumably the next eldest one who himself was unmarried. So... 
there's an indication here from this uh, gentleman who is uh, uh, very well respected, and I know that he studied Deuteronomy and studied this uh, quite a bit. So that's his opinion. He then he goes on to say the firstborn son of that relationship would take the name of the first husband, thus assuming the latter of an thus assuming the latter of an ongoing remembrance by the community. For this reason, the widow was to marry within the family, not outside or not to a stranger. So, what I've what I've done in our uh, our doctrine here of the Leverett marriage, I've done a couple things, and the first thing is I I actually had a sort of a commentary that I uh, used as I went through this passage, and what I've sort of amended that commentary to be now is let's see. For verse twenty, for verse five, I say that, and this is what I gave you last time: that the euphemism "go into her" means to have sexual relationships for the purpose of her becoming pregnant, and take her to himself means to marry her. So the duty was more than just fathering a child. And this was maybe some of the commentary that I gave you last time. So it's more than just fathering a child. And this is not in your notes. Um, But for the living brother, while not specifically stated, traditionally it was the next eldest brother. And um, I think I I sort of presumed that myself. So it's for the next living brother to assume the responsibility for the future welfare of the dead brother's wife. The widow would become his wife, and the child would take on the name of his brother and and represent him as an heir. The living brother, therefore, provides protection and a future for the widow. That's how that would work. He provides protection, security, and a future for the widow, and also preserves the name, the memory, and the interest of the deceased brother. So this is the intent. Although not specifically stated, many Bible scholars believe that the widow was to pass to an unmarried brother. And that was what I did not teach last time. This assumption is founded on the principle. This assumption is founded on the principle that God would not pointedly prohibit adultery in one part of the law. So he's not going to pointedly prohibit adultery in one part of the law. In other words, the marriage relationship being a symbol of faithfulness. And then authorize multiple sexual relationships in another part of the law. If you'd like me to repeat that, I will. We do have some uh, uh, passage of scriptures to go with this. Passage of scripture. So this assumption is founded on the principle that it would be an unmarried brother. The assumption is founded on the principle that God would not pointedly prohibit adultery. The assumption is founded on the principle that God would not pointedly prohibit adultery in one part of the law. Would not pointedly prohibit adultery in one part of the law. And then you might want to put in parenthesis Exodus 20.14, Deuteronomy 5.8, and Deuteronomy 17.17. Now, Exodus 20, 
14 and Deuteronomy 5.18 are the same, really the same passage. And uh, it deals with, thou shalt not commit adultery. So, I'll just go back to Deuteronomy. Um, what did I say? Deuteronomy 5.18. Deuteronomy 5.18 says, you shall not commit adultery. It's just that clear. And uh, adultery would be, in this, partic- in this situation, would be uh, having sexual relationship with someone who's other than your wife. Now, you could argue the case that the woman now becomes your wife, but there's nowhere in the Bible that we're taught polygamy. It's just not taught. It's, as a matter of fact, it's prohibited. That's not to say that it didn't occur. That's not to say that other sins don't occur. It's just that it's prohibited. And one of the reasons that it, we do see it occurring in the Bible very often is because culturally Israel lived in a world where it was accepted at the time. And so that would often creep into their culture as well. But it, again, it was prohibited. This structure did not exist in other places. Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, we saw uh, last time that this concept did exist within the family of Abraham. It doesn't, doesn't, uh, we don't see it with Abraham, we don't see it with Isaac, but we see it with Jacob's family. And we'll look at that here in a second as well. But, so, the idea here is that... uh, Additional sexual relationships while you're still married is prohibited by that uh, in the Ten Commandments. But let's also go over to Deuteronomy 17.17 because the next question that will come up, well, what about David? And what about Solomon? Of course, when we get to Solomon, it's a little bit easier to understand that. But what about David? And, of course, the question could be, what about Abraham? As he he's married to Sarah but he has sexual relationships with uh, Hagar. Well, the answer is it's, it's fairly evident that that was not sanctioned by God. Uh, Ishmael is born, and Ishmael is blessed because of his relationship with Abraham. But I believe that the, an explanation of Abraham is that he comes out of a pagan society. He grows up in Ur of the Chaldees. And so, while, again, that doesn't justify him deciding that Yes, uh, having an heir, trying to have an heir with Hagar is acceptable. He lives, he grew up and lived in a, in a culture that probably um, did not see it as inappropriate. And I think it's fairly evident to any of us who read um, Genesis that uh, this was not the Lord's will. As a matter of fact, he later on says, No, I said that you're going to have an heir from Sarah, you and Sarah, not just from you. And so uh, that was inappropriate. And it caused, obviously, it caused many problems within the family. So as we go to Deuteronomy 17.17, we see that God also anticipates a king for Israel. And this is clear back in the, uh, the days of Moses. And so Moses is now talking to the people before they cross into the land. And I always like to put Deuteronomy in... Uh, in contextual uh, position for us, and this is this is just prior to Joshua assuming command and crossing the Jordan. 
And so a king is not right around the corner. But this has been put in the law so that we will understand when the time comes for a king how a king should act. And verse 14 is a good place to start. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it, and I say... And say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. And it's kind of interesting that Moses, uh, the Lord, through Moses, uh, prophesied that this is exactly what was going to happen. That they weren't going to wait. That they decided they wanted a king. And not because the Lord was providing one, but because they wanted to be like all the nations around them. And if you've ever heard me teach portions of that scripture, that's exactly what the Lord didn't want them to be. They didn't, he wanted them to be a set-apart nation, a nation that was completely different than all the other nations. They would be an oddity. They would be so different. And other nations would know who they are. And for that reason, then they would be able to share their faith in God. It says anyhow that they would do that, that they would want to look like all the nations around them when the Lord specifically did not want them to. 15, you shall surely set a king over whom the Lord your God chooses, not one of your choosing, but one that the Lord chooses. From amongst your brethren, you shall set a king over you, and you, uh, you may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So he goes pretty in, in great repetition there to say that it's going to be someone from the tribes of Israel. But he shall not multiply horses for himself. In other words, he's not going to try to build military prestige and military power uh, to himself. He doesn't need to do that because the Lord's going to protect you. You shall not return that way again. We're not going to go back and and look and see uh, and, and act like other nations or act like Pharaoh in that regard. Then it says, verse 17, Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. So, what we see here is that even though we know that the kings did that, it was prohibited for them to do that. And so, when David takes multiple wives, when Solomon takes multiple wives, when others take multiple wives, it was inappropriate. It was wrong. It was not in accordance with God's guidance. So, that's Deuteronomy 17, 17. So, this assumption is founded on the principle that God would not pointedly prohibit adultery in one part of the law, Exodus twenty fourteen, Deuteronomy five eighteen, and Deuteronomy seventeen seventeen. the marriage relationship being a symbol of faithfulness, the marriage relationship being a symbol of faithfulness, and then authorize multiple sexual relationships in another part of the law. The, relation, the marriage relationship being a symbol of faithfulness, and then authorize multiple sexual relationships in another part of the law. And then authorize multiple sexual relationships in another part of the law. So, that's uh, what I've added to this doctrine as far as uh, the marriage situation is concerned. And I think that's a little bit better uh, position to take uh, simply because it, I think it demonstrates a, a clear understanding of, of what the, the Bible has been teaching us. And then it says in 25, Deuteronomy 25, when we get to the end, here it says, well, 7, if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let the brother's wife go to the gate. This is Deuteronomy 25, verse 7. 
But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. 8. Then the elders of the city shall call him, speak to him, validate this. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, I don't want to take her in marriage, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house, and his name will be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal removed. Now we talked about the meaning of the removal of the sandal last time, and I think that that is still fairly accurate. I think that the concept of the sandal, as we studied uh, with Abraham and also with Joshua, was walking on the land uh, was a symbol of possessing the land. And so you would walk about your land, and and that way you were really claiming it. So taking off the sandal is the symbol that you're not going to be able to walk on your brother's land. You can't take his land now that he's died. And so the sandal is passed to the wife because that sandal is going to go to the person who does marry her. And he will put the sandal on and he will walk on the property. And I think that symbolism uh, is... uh, is clearer here when we understand the symbol of the of the sandal. Now, the symbol of the spitting is a little bit more difficult, but I've changed my approach to it in the commentary that I have now written for myself, and it actually is going to be represented in number four. I think it's number four. Um, no, number four. Well, let me finish this one. Let me finish number four here because that's the that's an area that I was uh, really wanted to finish. We we saw um, actually there it is. I I'm sorry I had you write that down when it was actually right there for you. But let me continue with point four because that's where the change was in this uh, doctrine. Point four then in the examples in the Bible of the Levert responsibility, we have no indication that. Onan in Genesis 38.7 or that Boaz in Ruth 4 was previously married. Now, it doesn't say that they weren't, but there's no indication that they are. Now, let's go back to Genesis 8.38. Excuse me. Genesis 38, because that's where we were last time. And that's how I... One of, this is the only... There are only two examples in the Bible of a leveret marriage, unless we go to the New Testament where the Sadducees are talking to the Lord and asking about the woman marries uh, a man and he dies and then she marries the son or the brother and then he dies and then another brother and then another brother and then another brother and then another brother until we finally get to seven brothers. When she gets to heaven, whose wife will she be? Well, there's, so there's an indication here that they understood the responsibility of the marriage continuing in the family. But, of course... Um, we don't really have it expressed there clearly either. But in Genesis 38, we see that Judah, son of Jacob, marries a Canaanite woman. He marries a Canaanite woman, and they have children. Verse 3, so that she conceives and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son. She called his name Onan. 
And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. Uh, he was at uh, Chezeb, Chezeb when she bore him. Six. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. And of course, Tamar now will become very famous in the line of Christ uh, because when, and a little bit, a bit of a longer story here, but uh, Judah is not able to affect the leveret responsibility here with his sons. And that's why we're here. And I'll just. Uh, finish that a little bit later. Verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And then Judah here, see, this is before we have the law. So we don't have, uh, we haven't gotten to Mount Sinai yet. We haven't even gotten to Egypt to come out of Mount Sinai yet. So he says, and Judah said to Onan, second son, next eldest, and as near as we can tell, he's unmarried because Judah has not provided a wife for him because that's what he did for his first son. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife, marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. Then it says, But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass that when he went into his brother's wife, they admitted on the ground lest he should give up heir- heirship to his brother. And of course, this is... Uh, fairly graphic. I think we can see what's happened here. So he goes in, he decides, yes, I will. In fact, I don't know whether he married her or whether he just said, I will, I do want to have sex with her. But he decides that he doesn't want her to have an heir because he knows that then this is going to be the eldest son and the heirship will pass to him. And Onan uh, is subsequently killed by the Lord as well. So we see here that my point here is that we don't see that, that uh, Onan is married. So it appears that it passes to the next eldest son who is unmarried. And then we'll see that same thing in Ruth. We don't see, there's no way for us to understand that there is a marriage here in both cases. So while there may, it may have been that they might that the widow might join an existing marriage where there's already a wife. There is no scripture that says that, and every indication is that the son would be unmarried. So there was some concern at the end of the last class how that would work. So thankful for the question. I don't think it would work, or at least it would be very difficult to work. Onan. Well, he. Well, I think there's two things that happen here. First of all, he, and I think from this passage says, you know, maybe Tamar was a very attractive woman. The same Tamar that was raped. Excuse me. Excuse me. This. Excuse me. This is his. I'm looking at another passage. Yes. Yes, this is the same Tamar. That's right. This is Tamar. And I didn't finish the story there. But what happens here is that uh, Ur dies. Go back another step. Uh, Judah uh, provides a wife, Tamar, for Ur. Ur's wicked in the sight of God, so he dies. The Lord uh, executes him, we could say. And so now Judah says, okay, we have a custom here. And whether it was a law at the time or not, 
it was something that Judah was doing, and this is within, again, as we talked about earlier, Abraham's family, that I want you, Tamar, to pass to the next son, which was Onan. And again, Tamar, apparently, later on we'll find out from Judah himself, she's an attractive woman. So I think Onan is uh, very dishonorable in his actions here. He says, sure, I'll have sex with this woman, but I'm not going to fulfill my responsibility to her uh, and to the family. And so the Lord's... Well, yes, and then she later is going to end up having a child from Judah. And of course, because Judah is wandering and, and Tamar realizes that she's in his house waiting for the next son, but she thinks that that's probably not going to work either. And so she represents herself later on to Judah and he thinks she's a prostitute and he, they have sexual relationships and she becomes pregnant, she conceives and have a son. And that son from Tamar ends up being in the line of Christ. So, and, you know, reading the rest of Genesis there is a great story. But, now, point five. Let's jump to point five in, on your doctrine there. I've made this change as well. Refusal of this consideration, refusing of this op- obligation, was considered a slight on the family and the nation. It showed the brother had little regard for the family and the inheritance God had given to them. So, this is the same. The refusal is indicated through the removal of the sandal ceremony. The ceremony of the Chalissa was a public demonstration of the family going before the elders at the town gate, which was considered the local magistrate for the conduct of civil trials where legal decisions were made. If the brother said he was not going to assume his responsibility, then the woman was to come pull off, pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. Now, I've explained the sandal part of it, and I don't think I really go into it, and I might expand this again later on and go into the sandal part of it a little bit more here. But what's interesting here is that the the phrase that is translated spit in his face is very uh, literal. But we've, but in the Bible, and very often I'll translate it that way. I'll say it's the word here really means face, and it means to the front of someone. But throughout the Bible, we don't often translate it that literally. This phrase, because we do have the word ba, which is in, can also mean with, it can mean among, and then we have uh, pana, which means face. But this phrase is very often translated another way. And for those of you who have been following along in Joshua, let's go to Joshua 1.5. Joshua 1.5. We just saw this verse, I think, last night, which this morning caused me to spend some time, after I read that verse a couple times, I said, goodness gracious, how come I didn't see this before? didn't understand this before. Joshua 1.5 says, uh, The Lord is speaking to Moses, and he says to to him, No man shall be able to stand before you. Now, that is the same phrase, with the exception that it has appended to it as a suffix, the second person singular, you. Well, in our passage, we have the third person singular, 
him attached to it. So in our passage, this is translated, and you may remember, I always would stop here, it says before you, I would always say in front of you, to your face. No one's going to be able to stand here in front of you. Well, it doesn't mean something hitting him in the face. It means in front of them. So spitting in his face, we can again translate it in face of him, because that would be a very literal translation. But it really means before you. It's just as it's translated here. And we saw the same thing last night when we were studying Joshua 10. On our way back to Ruth, we might stop in Joshua 10. Again, it's the same construction. Verse 10, uh, chapter 10, uh, verse 8. And the Lord said to Joshua in Joshua 10, 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them. Remember, this is Joshua on their way to provide military support for the Gibeonites. Gibeonites are now under attack. And Joshua has sworn by the Lord of Israel, the Lord God of Israel, that he will defend them, that they will live. And so... Once they're under attack, Joshua is now on a night march up there to support them. But the Lord has told him, and the Lord had said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Same phrase, before you. And in our passage, in Deuteronomy 25, instead of probably translating it that literally, that she would spit in front of him, or in his presence, or before him. And so I am going to change that translation, and I believe that that's what the phrase means. Although the phrase is probably more accurately translated, I said, you know, spit in his face, although the phrase is probably more accurately translated, in front of him or in his presence, indicating that this was an irresponsible and a shameful act. So, she was then free to to remarry whomever she wanted. The first option was to go to the brother-in-law, but if that doesn't work, then she could go somewhere else. So, Um, I think that's a better representation of that passage as well. Uh, There are other passages where the same same phrase is translated. Deuteronomy 7.24 and Deuteronomy 11.25 also go with Joshua 1.5 and 10.8. So it's Deuteronomy 7.24, Deuteronomy 11.25, Deuteronomy 7.24, Deuteronomy 11.25, Joshua 1.5 and Joshua 10.8. So that I think this interpretation provides a better explanation. This interpretation provides a better explanation of the symbolism. The symbolism of the act of spitting, of what that spitting was to represent. So it's a a symbolic thing. It wasn't, you know, physically spitting in someone's face is obviously a shameful thing. I mean, it uh, is a, a strong insult. And that's not what this is trying to communicate. It's a symbolic act indicating that what the brother-in-law has done is dishonorable or shameful. So it's, and I think that that better represents this. It was performed to to publicly indicate the disgrace of the brother in declining to perform his duty as a a leveret. That should probably put a spit at his as she pulled the sandals off? Possibly, that's probably right. Probably could. 
Yeah. I think that's, that's the idea is that when he, he publicly refuses, and whether she actually does this or not, because you know, Ruth isn't there, Naomi's not there, and, but we have a completely different situation also with Boaz, and uh, we'll get to his name. We don't have his name. It's uh, old so-and-so. That's the Hebrew phrase for what we would call so-and-so. And so-and-so shows up at the gate. So so-and-so comes, and I think when we get there, uh, even though I might as well tell you right now because it really goes with this, I think the reason that the uh, closer relative, because Boaz understands the responsibility, is to pass from Elimelech to the closer relative or within that family. And Boaz is not a close relative. He is a relative, but he's not a close relative. So when uh, uh, Naomi through Ruth, says, take me as your responsibility. That's what she's doing, and there's all kinds of, of uh, suppositions on what Ruth means when she uncovers his feet and she arrives there. And we'll discuss that in, uh, in chapter 3, I think it is. In chapter 3, yes, yeah, in chapter 3. But... When Boaz gets up and leaves, he knows that, first of all, it has to be done legally. So he has to go to the gate of the city. And then secondly, he already knows that there's... And you know, Boaz may have checked this out. It may have been a concern to him. But he knows that there is a closer relative. So he goes to the gate, and that's where the legal uh, proceedings uh, occur. So that he's talking in front of the elders... And which we could say was, you know, a uh, maybe a, uh, a council of their peers there, and the closer relative. And when at first all that seems to be on the table is the property, the closer relative says, "Okay, I will assume the responsibility." But then when he finds out that no, there's an additional responsibility of being the husband to Ruth, he declines. And I think, and he says, because it will affect my inheritance. Well, I'm, I'm going to work more on this before we get there. But I think the inference might be that he is married. He is married. And when he finds out that he, it would include taking on this response, he says, I can't. And he declines at that point. And so I think that, that that's another indication that... Um, it was not expected of him to take on the responsibility of an unmarried woman if he's already married, in this particular case, to, in fact, produce an heir. Now, if it was simply for security and for provision, then it's not a problem. But if it includes producing an heir, then he can't do it. And we don't see any, we don't see any shame here. He simply passes the sandal to Boaz. And Boaz now has the responsibility of possessing the land, and he's also going to take on the responsibility of Ruth and producing an heir. So I think that helps us to understand this situation a little bit better. Uh, for those of you who were here last time, and uh, some of the questions were asked. Okay, any questions on that? If you have any questions, please uh, ask, because I enjoyed doing that additional research. Um, yes, Irene, please. If a person, if the widow was older, 
and like couldn't produce an heir anymore, you know, mm-hmm. like Naomi, for example, that yes, that maybe that person would take that one under their roof to just like you said, take yeah. care of them. Right. I don't know whether you still call it marriage or not, but you know, it was a legal responsibility to take care of them. Right, and that's what I meant. See yeah. the uh the closer relative was willing to, to do that. He, I think he was willing to take on Naomi because he knows the property, knows Naomi. But he's not at, the, at that point thinking of taking her on to raise up an heir because she'd had sons and they'd married. Now, the real, the real problem here is for the sons, the sons who have died without an heir. And so, um, Malthon and Chilion don't, you know they they couldn't they didn't have heirs, so really now she's looking we're looking at Ruth, and so I, the answer Irene is, is yes that um, for someone who's older and that's what's going to happen with Naomi she comes back and someone is going to take her into the family and provide for her, just like we would for you know a mother-in-law or a, a grandmother or an aunt or someone whose husband and family are gone. They're, you know, they're picked up by another family. But they're not taken on as a wife. They're taken on as a responsibility uh, simply because we're responsible people to take care of our family. And so, does that answer your question, Irene? Any other questions here? Whew, marvelous. Charles, yes. What is your question? Elimelech. Elimelech, yes. Well, we're not told that he did. We're not told that he did. So that leaves Naomi without an option. Yes, but see, I think the reason we don't dwell on Naomi here is because she's already told us she's beyond childbearing years, even if she could bear children. She's beyond childbearing years. That's why we say she's probably at least at a minimum 50, maybe a little older. That's right. So, right. Yes, the the other Moabitess wife goes back. Right. Okay, but she has no brother-in-law because both her brothers died. Well, no, we don't know about her family because she is a Moabitess that was married to a Jewish son, and so Naomi, and that's why I think. That all there's so much more involved in her conversation with her daughters. They're coming with her because they now belong to her family, and she says, "No, I'm releasing you of your responsibility to remain in this family." And Naomi, I think, is also saying to them, "You're not going to end up marrying anybody in my family to have heirs." Well, she's saying to. Uh, uh, to the other daughter-in-law to return to her uh, family to find a husband because you're not going to find a husband in my family. That's what she's so saying. She has the authority to... Well, didn't well, but I think it was common sense to her at the point. At that point, uh, plus she wants she's Naomi, as we said, is going home for all kinds of different reasons. She's bitter. She's resentful. I think she's going back to die. She's not. She's not thinking clearly at all, anyhow, because Ruth says, "I'm going to follow your God." You know, that's not she could but care I'm less. Not to follow here is 
Naomi is pretty foul. She's not talking. She's talking to the women. Right. But she's not talking to Ruth. I was trying to track what were the first words after she had told her going back home that she said she was going to follow her to tell her dad. Well, literally the first words she addressed, words she addresses, words she addresses to. Uh, no, well, she's talking to. If, if I'm, if I understand your question, what are the first <laughs> words that she has to Ruth? Naomi said nothing. I mean, literally. After Orpah leaves. She encourages, she tells Ruth, she can go back home too. She tells her, I'm going to stay. And you want to the fact that she made this passionate statement until, until death that we are in century. She still says nothing to her. She's talking with the women of the city that came out to greet her. Correct. But I'm just trying right. to find what were the very literal words that Naomi broke her silence with towards Ruth. Well, we really. There's a lot of. We don't, we don't have. We don't have an indication of what she says to Ruth. All we know is that after Ruth tells her that your God will be my God, where you die, I will die, there I will be buried, when she concludes, we're told that Naomi just stops speaking to her. And they turn and they go. And that's why there's no conversation, as near as we can tell, between uh, Naomi and Ruth. And then she... we don't know that she necessarily breaks her silence. Chapter two starts off with kind of the outside voice speaking of her situation. That's right. And I was trying to find. And that's where we are now. Silence breaks. We don't. We don't. We don't know until we get to to chapter two, verse two, when Ruth says to Naomi, "Please let me go to the fields and glean the heads of grain." Well, but let me finish here. Verse 2, so Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she, Naomi, says to her, Ruth, go my daughter. That's the first time that we, we know of any conversation. I mean, there's bound to have been many conversations prior to that. We just don't have it. It's not recorded for us. But I think to answer your quest, other question, it's a good one, is that... Naomi, through her conversation with Orpah and Ruth, is telling them that you're not going to find any other sons in my family for me to pass you on. And on top of that, she believes that they're going to be better off going back to their families and trying to... See, God has taken my husband, he's taken my sons, it's over, it's finished. There's no more air here, don't even try it. Ruth, Orpah, it's hopeless. And God says, oh. And so Ruth stays. They come back. And it works out wonderfully. But Naomi is, has no clue how this is going to happen. And that's why she says, she's indicating that there would be a levered responsibility if in fact she thought it was possible. But there is no possibility. And so there's no level of responsibility to her personally, but there is one to Ruth. Because Ruth comes back, she, is a, she has faith in the God of Israel, and so she becomes part of what we would call the community, the assembly of Israel. And so the Lord is going to take care of her. Okay. 
I can answer some more of that later, but let's go on to verse 2. Let's get started in our passage now. Maybe I'll answer some other questions as we go. So we've seen in verse 1 of chapter 2, there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great character. Now, again, we don't know how close he is. He obviously may be a cousin of some sort. And we also don't know how close the closer relative is when we get to chapter 4. But anyhow, he's a man of great character of the family of Elimelech. His name, Boaz. And I've talked about this before. It was a wonderful introduction of Boaz. His name, Boaz. Very dramatic. So Ruth, the Moabitess, and and we really have a a break there uh, because that's background information. And many people... We'll see chapters twenty or verses twenty-two out of chapter one and and verse one in chapter two as sort of transitional verses that the narrative gets us up to speed. We know something now that Naomi and Ruth don't know. <clears throat> and now Ruth, they're back in the land. Ruth, the Moabitess. Notice how the uh, uh, author continues to remind us who Ruth is. Uh, just seems to continue to remind us that Ruth is a fish out of water here in Israel. The implication is that this is more than just an Israelite widow looking for kindness or an opportunity to work. She's a Moabitess. She's a stranger. And I'm going to try to get to, if I can get to this one passage here before we leave today. Yeah, we'll get there. Uh, said to Naomi, please let me go. Let me walk to the field. So she's asking permission. I mean, Ruth is a very well-oriented young lady. She doesn't just say, I'm going to go to work. (laughs) I'm going to go out and find work. She says, may I go find work? So she understands her relationship to Naomi. She also understands her relationship in Israel. I'm a Moabitess. Uh, You know, how do I fall under... And she probably has learned from Naomi that it is appropriate or from somebody else that she can go out and work in the fields. But she is not necessarily sure how that works, so she asks for permission. Uh, go to the field in order that, and that's what we have here really, a purpose a purpose clause, in order that I may glean, glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I might find favor. And she, Naomi, said to her, Ruth, go, my daughter. And so... I think with that response, we do see in Naomi that she is now understanding the situation better, and she's now responding in a very positive way, or responding again in a positive way towards Ruth. Now, one of the comments here I have is that one of the reasons, uh, I said it appears that Naomi, one of the reasons that I early on said that Naomi has returned to Bethlehem to die, because I think I did make that statement, that she's on her way home, that's just going home to die, is that she now makes little or no attempt to go to the fields to work. I mean, she's kind of home, she's, my life is over, and even though she's probably recovering, we still do not see that. And of course, after a while, she's going to realize she doesn't need to, because Ruth has struck it rich. Uh, not well, figuratively and literally, because Boaz is going to be so generous to her with grain. She keeps she comes keeps coming home with all of this barley. As a matter of fact, I'm surprised she could carry it. But anyhow, uh, she makes no attempt to go to the fields to work. She's older, but we have no indication that she's un, that she's 
incapable of at least limited worth. I mean, she walks back from Moab, walks all the way back, so there's no indication that she was incapable of doing this. Now, we don't want to be too hard on Naomi, but I think she's still, to a certain extent, recovering from her resentfulness and possibly still feeling a little bit sorry for her situation. So, we're now seeing Naomi at the beginning of the chapter. And now we're going to leave Naomi. This is the last time that we're going to see Naomi for a while. And so as we move on in this act or this chapter, she's going to be absent for the major part of the chapter. And then she'll return at the end, having the last comment. So Ruth now will take a leading role in the play or in our story. And uh, Boaz will join her here soon. And I think as I started to say before, that Ruth is, is, is very well-oriented. You know, I think we could say she's grace-oriented. She understands her relationship to Naomi. She understands her relationship in Israel. And she's not being presumptuous. She understands that her opportunity to glean, and indeed her very life, is dependent upon the mercy of others. And that's how she describes this. She says, I'm going to try to go find favor in somebody's field, meaning that they'll be gracious enough to allow me to glean there. That's what she's saying. She assumes nothing. She realizes that the favor of the landowner or the reapers cannot be taken for granted. Now, gleaning here, we have to understand what gleaning means, and this is probably where we'll, we'll end our class, but we've got several passages to look this up. But the idea of gleaning is not harvesting. Now, we're not going to just find a field somewhere and harvest. Couldn't do that. So it's not as if... Um, there's going to be a, a wonderful field there for her. So the idea of gleaning is not harvesting, but it's picking up the scraps or the leftovers, that which is dropped or unreaped by field hands. So gleaning, again, is not harvesting. It's simply picking up the scraps, the leftovers, that which is dropped or unreaped, we might say, by the regular field hands. And... This is, of course, very hard work, and it's limited efficiency. And I, I can tell you that I remember doing this back in Iowa on the farm. Uh, after, and this would be in a cornfield, after the picker would go through and pick the ears of corn, there was always a certain amount of ears that, for some reason, would either not be pulled off the stock or would miss the hopper for some reason. And so we would come along behind, and you could either have a tractor and a wagon, or in one case we had we were doing it with a neighbor, and he had his truck out there. And driving along, and what we would do is we would, I remember Dad, the neighbor, and my older brother and I, Rick, were there, and we would just kind of move forward, and we would throw the ears of corn in the back of the truck. And the neighbor was a very humorous individual, and I can remember him saying to us, I think it was my father. Richard, how many ears can you keep in the in the air at once? Well, <laughs> anybody who would be thinking would be thinking, you know, how many, how high you throw them, and all the rest of that. And he says, I think it's pretty. He said, I think I can keep four. And so he just threw two, and he said, those two and these two. Well, it was kind of funny. But you don't say that to boys because now boys are going to try to do something unusual. And I did, and I broke the windshield of his truck. (laughs) To this day, I can remember thinking, I think I can keep five or something like that. Smash! (laughs) He's standing right there. 
It was an, un, it was a, an embarrassing situation, to say the least. Anyhow, that's my story on reaping. Gleaning, rather. Gleaning. My story on gleaning. So I've gleaned. So it's hard work with limited efficiency. And Ruth doesn't know how God will solve her problems here. But she's not moping or worried. She simply gets up and goes about what she can do. And she's beginning to demonstrate a reliance on God. And we'll see that God will reward her faithful persistence. So, her actions now are based on her understanding of the Old Testament law. Let me give you uh, three passages. Let me give you three passages, and we'll we'll look at these passages. The first one is Leviticus nineteen nine through ten. Leviticus nineteen nine through ten. We'll also see Leviticus twenty three twenty two, and then Deuteronomy twenty four nineteen. So Leviticus nineteen nine through ten, Leviticus twenty three twenty two. And Deuteronomy 24.19. There's another passage in Psalm 41.1 that uh, is kind of instructive. But uh, let's go to Leviticus 19. That was Psalm 41.1. Let's go to Leviticus 19.9. Our first passage is Leviticus 19.9. To make sure we understand what she is doing. What she's allowed to do. Leviticus 19.9. And Moses is recording the law as the Lord gives it to him. And he says, 9, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your fields, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. In other words, the grain that is left by the reapers who have gone through the first time. So what the reapers couldn't do, the reapers couldn't go through and then come back. And we'll see that later on. There's another passage that talks about that more clearly. Uh, Nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. You can't go back and pick up what you've dropped. And you shall not glean your vineyards, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. In other words, you're not going to pick up every, every fruit that falls. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. And then he punctuates that by saying, I am the Lord your God. And by the way, there's something... There's some very interesting principles that are being taught by this passage. And number one is that the poor are not just given handouts. They actually are going to get the gracious provision of those who are giving it to them. And in that way, they are not humiliated by somebody just giving them something. And secondly, they're still a productive part of society. They're working for their own provisions. So the dole here is not does not come from... This part of Scripture. We do see that we take care of widows in the New Testament, so there is a provision for that. But for the poor and those who are able to work, they work. Okay, that's Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. Now let's go to Leviticus 23. It's explained again in Leviticus 23, 22. Leviticus 23, 22 says... When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your fields. When you reap, nor shall you, the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleanings from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Now some of you may have seen uh, in some uh, fields, and this would probably be in fields where, uh, like with mm, wheat, uh, barley, 
uh, maybe even soybeans. They would sow the field by what we would call broadcasting. And you could either do it by hand, that was the way we did it early on, or you can put it through a machine that we call broadcasts the seeds. And when you did it that way, you would seed the whole field, the corners. But when it came time to harvest with the implements, you can't get into the corners. So you just round off the corners and go along the fence, and then you get to the other corner, you round it off, and then up the other side. And I remember very clearly in my mind seeing these corners of the fields that have grain still growing there. And you'd see them in all the corners of, of the field. And that's sort of what he's talking about here. Now, it doesn't tell us how big a corner they have to leave, but they're supposed to leave corners. They're supposed to leave sections, parts of their field, so that those who are, and here it says, uh, the poor and the stranger can reap. Now, let's go to Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24.19. Deuteronomy 24:19 says, "When you reap your harvest in your fields and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands." So this tells us exactly what we see in, in Naomi. She's a widow. We also see here that. Uh, Ruth is a stranger. She is not uh, just a widow, but she's also a stranger. The fatherless and the widow we see here. And it also says, a little bit more clearly, if when you're harvesting, you should drop a sheaf of grain. In other words, they're harvesting along and they drop several of the cut uh, stalks of grain. They drop them. They're not supposed to go back and pick them up. They're supposed to just continue on. So as the field hands are doing this, both men and women who are doing this, they, they drop something, leave it. That was their system of welfare. You leave something for someone else to pick up who's coming behind you. When you beat your olive trees to knock the fruit off, you shall not go over the boughs again. So if you've done it once, and then you're out there looking and say, oh, wait a minute, there's some more we forgot. No, you're supposed to leave them. And that was always Dad sending us back up the ladder to pick the, the apple that we missed or the cherries that we missed or something like that. If I'd have known this passage, I said, Dad, I can't go back up there. We're supposed to leave that for the poor. I don't think he'd accepted that as an answer. 21, when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, therefore I command you to do this thing. So, those who are less fortunate. Now, an interesting comment here in 19, it says, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheath in the field, you shall not go back over it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, for the widow. That the Lord that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So there was a promise here of prosperity if they did this. And that's what Psalm 41.1 says. Psalm 41.1 says, Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will bless and he will be blessed on the earth. So it's very interesting that the Lord makes this promise in Deuteronomy twenty four, and then in Psalm forty one one, he says 
that uh, he would bless them. Okay, so this was an honorable way of taking care of the poor and the needy. They were not humiliated by handouts, and they still had to work for what they received. So it was a wonderful way of doing this. Ruth qualifies under these provisions because she's a stranger. She's a Moabitess, and she's also a widow. But Ruth also knows, because of these two factors, she is also probably not in the highest rung of society. So she says, I'm going to go to find a field where I will be allowed to glean. And so she shows that she is very grace-oriented here. She knows that she must count on the good graces of the locals and the landowners. Okay. Well, we covered more than just one more verse, but verse 2 is as far as we got this time. Uh, Next week we'll come back. I don't think I'll have uh, any more updates on the uh, uh, doctrine of the Leveret marriage, so we'll be able to move on in 3, verse 3. Unless there are any other questions. Good. I'd say I knew I covered it thoroughly, but I probably didn't. It's probably just being kind. All right, let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to study the Bible. Even though we're in Ruth, we're also getting an opportunity to see other passages of Scripture and how there is a, a unity to the Word of God. And so we're thankful that God the Holy Spirit has provided this unity through the Bible. And we can go to various sections and see uh, the principles and the teachings of your word and your Bible and then be able to apply it more clearly in our lives. Thank you for those who are here to study the Bible. Thank you for their persistence. And we pray, Father, that uh, we will see them back here next week. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.